wasn't that loud. Sounds loud. No, that wasn't loud. <laughs> we got to get people back in here. How are we going to do that, Jeff? Julie? <laughs> Offer up some of those fluorescent golf balls you just got to see if people will come in. Like she needs golf balls. Does she golf? Just a little. Or does she work? Well, you can do both at the same time. Sometimes very effectively. I don't know. The ATT <laughs> people don't seem to golf much. We got, we got, we got told not to meet with any of them in person for the next month. Where's Waldo? The one-armed paper hanger has arrived. What time is it, Carl? It's time to talk about better advances in fleet, I believe. What's going on? We got to get people in here, though. Well, if we start talking, normally people arrive. It's amazing how that works. Are I they going to watch Peyton and Archie? <laughs> oh, is that what's going on now? Unfortunately. That is a tough act to compete with. How well, tonight, told us tonight, about that? tonight's Colin Jost. So which do you think is worse? Colin Jost, particularly if Scarlett Johansson is with him, hmm. okay, versus the, huh? the Mannings. What are you talking about? Tonight, the, there's a party with Colin Jost being the, the main attraction. And his girlfriend, or fiance, fiance right now, right? Fiance. Scarlett Johansson is, I assume, with him since she travels with him most of the time. Why would you assume that? There's, there's a pandemic going around. That's true, but, but um, how do I put this? She doesn't miss a Saturday Night Live episode, so they're definitely hanging together quite a lot. So can we send somebody up to Peyton and Archie to start sneezing in that room? Would that fill this place up? <laughs> well, I don't know. Archie's kind of old. I'm not sure that that would be a good idea. So, uh, let's, let's get, get ready to Modex. All right. So, my favorite. Look at George. He's just smiling. So, <laughs> just getting paid. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> not it's enough. All good. <laughs> no, they're enjoying themselves here. They've they've had new technology experiences. It's been all sorts of fun. So, we don't have a deck, we're just talking here, right? Sure, absolutely. So, um, first let's go for the simple question. What's been going on at the show? What's been good conversations? What's been a new discussion for you? You know, where is the show heading you? Uh, well, so and, 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 and hang on, who are you? Oh. So my name's Jeff Newman, I'm VP of uh, Business Development at Calamp, and one of the focus areas that I work on with inside of Calamp is in our supply chain visibility and integrity group, which is, from that aspect, the council is really about giving visibility to the cargo, independent of the trailer, the cab. It's a, it's a view of the cargo and the cargo life and journey from compliance and analytics and, and statistics around that. So to answer your question, so, um, one of the partners that we're with here is working on embedding um, sensor technology into the pallet. They run a managed service close loop pallet for a number of Fortune 50 companies. Um, we're trying to help them not only understand visibility, but start to look at some of the compliance around 
temperature variation, um, extreme shock, things that can happen. What's interesting in this show um, that we've, we've actually kind of walked into is kind of the need to start to do indoor tracking inside the four walls, right? You know, we've always kind of been focused on the mobility aspect, and we say that the point of demarcation and the start of the journey starts from the time the cargo is effectively inside the dock door, gets onto the truck, and then hopefully all the way till its final delivery point, depending on whether that's last mile or ABC. Interestingly enough, at the show today, there really is starting for us, there's starting more, more emphasis on where are my assets, my manufacturing supply chain related logistics assets inside of the four walls, whether that's pallets in a location, whether I'm starting to do light inventory management, whether I want to integrate my, my inventory management system with where my assets are. Um, and that, that has some interesting technical challenges for a lot of reasons, just from a, from a sensor-based technology and from a location-based technology. We, we've, we've worked with a couple of companies and had some other discussions really around how can you start to do and what are the technologies around doing really interesting indoor tracking and do that extension to the mobility aspect of the supply chain. So is that a result of the third-party logistics side of the equation? Are, my, my old boss used to say there's the Gazintas and the Gazautas. Is this a discussion on the Gazinta side, on, on things coming into uh, production, or is this all about warehouse and out, outbound? Most of the discussions that we have had are with who owns the asset. Okay. And so if that asset is owned and managed or is paid for by the owner of the goods because they're responsible to get it on, that becomes their concern. If it's in the transportation and logistics piece because that asset is transferred to them and part of that transportation and delivery and ownership, um, then it moves that direction. I would say the bulk of the conversations we have had have been around who's liable for that pallet, rack, piece of equipment as it's sitting inside of the facility, whether that's at the drop-off point or whether that's at the install point. And the assumption is once the 3PL dumps it off, if as long as the inventory count of pallets is right, you know, then their responsibility is gone. But, the, but they're seeing some, some the conversations we've had, they're seeing some interesting things where the number of pallets or containers on a truck in the return logistics isn't exactly what it's supposed to be. So whether they're short shipping on purpose or whether they're just not counting when they get on or whether they're you know, concerned about the actual number. Um, but that true up and that reverse logistics is where we've had a lot of discussions around what does it take to really understand what that, when those assets come back around, how do you know the right number got back to where they were and you can figure out where they didn't get to on the back part of the journey. So to paraphrase that, a lot of people can't, can't find their assets out, with both figure hands. out when their assets are delivered right. and they come back why it's not the right number. And where, and where they went and who owns them. So, so people can't count, or if they can count, they're counting the wrong way. They can't find their assets with both hands. Right? Yeah, or they're being charged. The term that we heard was exorbitant fees in terms of lost assets and assets that stayed too long in the warehouse before they got returned, and they're trying to correlate that back to what actually happened to that, to that pallet or that container in that journey. So, so the first time I, I met with somebody from your organization, not CalAMP, but actually the supply chain integrity portion of the organization, um, uh, was at a meeting um, of an organization called TAPA, sure. the Transported Asset Protection Association. Mm -hmm. And what I likened that to was a 12-step program for anybody that lost anything expensive, right? It didn't matter who you were, right? What manufacturer or, or, or uh, if it was a logistics company, if it was a insurer of the goods, they were all there. The gang is all here. Um, and that's about, I don't know, probably seven or eight years ago. 
that I that I spoke at that um, session. I learned a lot, but what I have, but what I've learned lately is not a hell of a lot has changed um, in, in that space with that group, with that organization. How do we? You guys are creating solutions where you're able to to track that stuff, but a lot of companies don't adopt. Um, Diageo Group was was somebody who who spoke, and um, and I, I just want to know is this still one of the problems out there? Diageo spoke, and they were losing 25 cases of Johnny Walker Blue per day on a train in South Africa every day. And the wholesale price isn't that much. The retail price is exorbitant. And um, within the organization, um, the, uh, they thought the, 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 the flaw lied with security. And it was a trailer tag, right? The trailer tag getting snipped, opening the, the trailer door on, on the train car, um, offloading that stuff. But no one would pay for bulletproof locking, right? Uh, on on that, uh, it was the security thing. It, then it became a uh, they wanted to pr provide a, a connected uh, tracking device on on it. Um, then it became an IT issue. Then it became, and it turns out it got shot down five ways from Sunday from every group within the organization until the salesperson actually was leaving the company and 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 was riding the escalator down and bumped into the CMO, the chief brand officer, who saw that, wow, if we're losing 25 cases of liquor a day, that's not to somebody that's throwing a party. That's to somebody that's bootlegging this stuff. You know, basically taking our boxes and our brands, right? And they saw it as a brand issue, which was big enough to cause a change, to, to go to a, a technology change. Is that the same way it is for a lot of these guys out there? I don't care whether it's technology companies or like like Apple or or or, or um, Motorola that are shipping handsets around the world that get 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 lost and stolen. Is it you know? Is it food goods? Is it right? Do we have that same challenge? This is not a technology issue. This is a yeah. It's definitely not a technology issue. And so I'll, I'll play off on your CAPA discussion because SCI was grown up in the theft and security of full truckloads. So alcohol, tobacco, um, Sephora, Macy's, you know, high value electronics, LG, Samsung. It was interesting that you know 10 years ago you could the the price to fully monitor a full trailer for theft and security was about a hundred dollars a load. And that was the monitoring service, the device, or some whatever was built into it. That price now is somewhere on the order of $30 per load. Most of those loads are between 750k and a million dollars. So back to your point is when you work with the security department, they don't really have a budget around brand recognition. They have an insurance play which says, okay, if I lose a million dollar load, what's my impact on insurance, right? But it's it's a trade-off against insurance. So in order for us to make the business case stronger outside of the theft and security and the security department, we've had to go into the operational department, we've had to go into the marketing department, and pharma and food, it is about brand, right? It's about the quality of your brand. And so in our business, we've had to go in and say, look, once, you've, once you're, if your anchor is already in on theft and security, 
right? There's a whole host of other information you can get just by censoring up the shipment, whether that's the trailer or the cab or the, or the cargo itself. Um, and we've started to see, particularly with, with data analytics and cloud hosting on the technology and the ability to do more kind of feeds into the, the corporate enterprise system, they can take that information and it's no longer just about recovery, active recovery of the, the cargo and process or the chain of custody when that, that cargo moved from one point to another and who assumed ownership to it. But yeah, it's been inside of just the loss prevention or loss area, even with a, an opportunity we're working in South Africa with cotton bales, the loss value itself, even though it could be great, is not enough to move the needle on, on mass adoption. It's gotta be brand quality, retention, black market, um, prevention, other things. Okay, my turn. So, so with that statement, is it all high high value assets? Is it um, where do we end up with? Uh, is it just is brand protection the biggest aspect aspect of it? I think what I'm trying to figure out is is there levels of, of we don't care anymore because it's that low an asset or does everybody care because it's production? Uh, I think the answer to that is um, everyone cares because it's important. It's a question of whose budget it is. The, the thing that's happening now, and we'll take, we'll take consumer electronics, right? It's not, there is the theft of the full truck, but it is about pilfers off the back. So what happens now in that market space is somebody will pull into a known location, whether that's Bucky's mm -hmm. truck stop or a pilot or whatever. It's a known location, so within the route area, that truck or that fleet system's allowed to go there. The system that's monitoring will say, yeah, that's a known location. It's outside the 200 miles. You know, we're not allowed to stop. It's a known location. Um, but people now that are in that theft business within 10 minutes can basically break the seal in the back of the door, get something close, and pull the first 10 or 15 pallets off the back of the truck, right? So they're not necessarily unhooking the trailer, they're just they're piffering the truck. And so that's gone from, you know, okay, I'm worried about my trailer being stolen or somebody hijacking it, to now I'm getting, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars pulled off the truck or maybe tens of thousands of dollars that end up in a warehouse 10 miles away and it's moved very quickly. Um, so in that, in that area, there is definitely some interest to figure out, okay, we've kind of solved the problem on full truck load with automation. How do we go start to figure out how to handle the theft that's occurring in transit, which is, granted, it's not a million dollar load, but it is tens of thousands of dollars, particularly in the phone space, and that will get liquidated and moved within hours after the, after the transaction, after it's been stolen. Um, we see that in pharma. Interestingly enough, baby food, baby formula, is the second highest theft in the North American market because it's got a very high street value and it can be moved within a matter of hours after they've taken it off the truck. Most most everybody has had one at one point or another. Yes. Well, in the powdered baby form, they can be used for multiple things. Yeah, there are other there are other purposes. Yeah, so that that that's the challenge we're running into now. Is I think for decades, you know, we we've, we've monitored things. Now we have to try and figure out as as time has gotten has gotten smarter, how do you handle the pilferage and the and the loads that aren't necessarily pulled, but just being charged full loads and and product that's being put on that isn't your product, right? Somebody else that's hauling it had some extra room and they're giving their buddy a free pass to move stuff. So that's kind of the area we're into now, which is almost as much an operational issue and the price they're paying for transport and making sure it's fair as it is about theft. One of, one of the things I learned uh, what, what, that I thought was interesting is no one can actually measure the economic loss of this stuff as well, right? It's almost impossible to measure it because 
so many companies don't report their loss, right? right? Because of the impact to the bottom line, the stock or the company's brand or the image. So they just eat it, eat it and smile. As a matter of fact, I was part of an eat it and smile. Uh, I was product manager for, for uh, at Gateway and I lost a shipment of monitors. I have no idea where that thing went, but we played, you know, we've, we, we've, we've played pin the tail on a donkey or something, you know, for, for months, you know, and, and, and I, I bid out of that d department, so it became somebody else's problem. Where's that load of monitors? Um, uh, you know, and, and how much is that? You know, that's street value of a semi-load of high-value computer monitors back in the day was, you know, hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, and some of it is just the fear of instrumenting, right? I mean, I think everybody on the telematics side of the tab understands with ELD mandates that almost all tabs now have some level of instrumentation. And to a certain extent, the, the owned trailer. It's, it's kind of been mandated, though. Yeah, right? it has been mandated. But even, but Are we going to get to that point with the trailer as well? I don't know. It's an interesting concept, right? I mean, I, I think the, the, certainly the, the trailers that are owned by the companies that haul it have an incentive to do that. There is so much that we see in the broker market, and I don't know if that's 80% of shipments or 70% of shipments that are brokered, right, which is they find somebody to haul. Um, we work with customers today that literally have hundreds, if not couple hundreds of trailers that they can't find on a, on a needed basis. They just write it off as we know it's in the lot, right? We'll find another one, we'll pull it, we'll send somebody out there on his motor scooter or his Segway or whatever, right, to do the lot, try and track it down. But it is a super inefficient way to run a business. Well, it's not only trailers, it's containers, it's pallets, it's ULDs. You know, <laughs> we could talk all day about ULDs. The, the ULD thing, people don't realize what ULDs are. They're those um, shipping containers that basically airlines use. That, that uh, uh, American Airlines has 26,000 ULDs on the books. They can find 13,000 of them. Yeah, and, and stories we hear a lot of them are hidden in the back corners of things, so somebody always has access to a container if they need to expedite a shipment. But yeah, to your point, it's like it's roughly a big percentage that they know they have, but they have no idea where they are, where they physically are, and no way to reconcile that inventory other than trying to do a physical count once a year or so. It's a funny story. Out by DFW, they were starting a new subdivision, and they found a couple of ULDs in there that were being used as homeless camps. Now, how do you get them? DFW, as an airport, I don't know if people realize this, is larger than the island of Manhattan. So how they got them from the runway, over the fence, past security, into a field that, uh, a mile away, right, is, is beyond me, but I mean. Yeah, it's a, in the airline industry in itself is an interesting thing because they have ground assets that they've started to monitor. They have the ability, really the ability to force a lot of the, the people that bring stuff to them at a cargo level to have some level of instrumentation that they could tap into, you know, and, and they do, they do very little in terms of their own inventory management to try and optimize the resources. So back to you guys. <laughs> Sorry about that. So um, Maersk and IBM and a whole bunch of people made a big deal about blockchain and how that was going to solve the world's problems. And I sat there and I listened and I said, something doesn't add up right to me. So first of all, in this hall, have people been saying, oh, tell me about blockchain, or is that not anywhere near these folks? No, I don't think so there. I mean, the only place we've seen blockchain and supply chain start to come into play is in conversations around pharma 
and change of chain of custody with the the records certainly you could make you could make that argument there because even if it's in the clinical drug stuff right that it's such high risk and there's so much that could go wrong in that process that you want a digital trail you get to the rest of the team and and the market segments I mean it's such an overwhelming task to figure out to implement that process that just saying you have the technology to do it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's contracted on the ledger and nor all of your 3PLs and brokers and vendors contracted at a ledger level to deal with the transaction so I mean I think for IBM is a total solution they probably can sell it we know some other guys that have done it but outside of pharma we've not seen a lot of uptake in conversation at least not even in the last year blockchain just from its name sounds like it should be used for security right it's a block right that's a chain that's neither of those things yes you know I was I was on a panel last winter with the head of media relations for that group at IBM and I asked him how's it selling well we got some trials going of this but you're but you're right it's it's not in the it's not going to secure the supply chain it's going to be for visibility right and and chain of custody right and the larger your supply chain is the harder it's going to be to use blockchain to get visibility because of how many people are going to be authorized as signers of, of that so I almost think the right model is what IBM is doing with with Walmart on it it's a very small ecosystem of participants and it's for very clear purposes right right and, and you only have certain vendors that are opted into that program because the way a lot of shipment works today is so much stuff is ad hoc it's this has to get out weather change somebody else inbound and so I find somebody that can move that load at a price I mean the, you, the broker stuff is done in truck stops right where they bid on jobs down the street and so that broker business is, is very difficult to tie into that and be able to have a dynamic system that would allow you to do that so let me take us a step down lower what just talk to me about how people are taking advantage of you to get into their database to their back-end systems are they using any digital twin capability or is there a notch below blockchain where they're taking advantage of putting stuff into their their back-end stuff I, I think Carl can you explain digital twins because yeah. there might be some people here that yeah. sure the the concept of a digital twin is that it's a it takes the physical act asset and basically makes it so that there's a corresponding electronic asset that is for lack of a better term we could call it a data bit that they're actually following uh, through the process so in theory the digital twins there from beginning to end with uh, whatever the product or asset is so, so in the and we work with some pretty big players I think the general answer to that is that discussion has not moved outside of a CIO CTO group. okay we've had no one that has asked us on how to implement that and, and I think in this industry there's so many archaic processes and so much um, infrastructure to the whole supply chain you know from the manifest to the alignment with assets to the you know the systems that the TMS systems that feed in that um, we've just the, the problem we've been helping customers solve is how do I get extended visibility and how do I help that data be, be effectively flat enough that you can take it and run whatever analytics are important to you, right, on whatever tool. The security elements have all been classic cloud-based security. 
some some companies have been a little more stringent than others but for the most part we're i still think we're kind of in the infancy of cloud based solutions feeding into their back end enterprises most of their back end enterprises are very close systems that don't even have data feeds that come in they do some manual translation of the shipper information or the reports that come out and somebody convert an analyst converts that into data that they can use there's not even a lot of ebi links on some of this stuff today so Going back to the very first conversation or very first thing we said, right, with the people not counting or not wanting to count properly, okay, how does that manifest itself in terms of what they're asking you to, to do? Since if they're not willing to count and they're having problems with the count on the front end where it's eight and the back end where it's six, you know, you, you're stuck in the middle in a, as to who shot John, right? So how are you helping that? Yeah, so I think all of these discussions boil down to operational implementation. So you, we can, we do our, we, we're giving Julie a hard time, but Julie does ROIs all day long about lost assets, right? And lost labor with assets and the financing assets. But at the end of the day, your argument is with whoever on the shop floor or whoever on the asset manager that has to physically go out and tag and implement things. And if you are adding processes to him, to understand what his stuff is or her, that that barrier is is pretty high. If you can if you can walk in with a with a solution that says, here's how you can outfit your asset with a with a smart sensor, and it fits into your maintenance cycle, and it is a no-touch reconciliation with your asset management system. And if you pull it out of service, it's one click. If you can help them with that process, so at the end of the day, the person on the floor is is actually doing less work. To, to, to monitor the system, to get alerts, um, and not having to recycle count, that's kind of the way you win it. But if, but if every step you add in the process in, incorporates something that says, I have to type it into the system, and then I have to pair these things together, and I have to click on this, and every time I say, it just, the, the system shuts down dramatically. And if you understand kind of in the, in the operational flow, the different skill sets that are involved, while the, the office, while the, you know, the operations manager and his scheduling team have access to all of the tools, the, the, the worker on the floor may not. They may not have a mobile phone. They may not have a tablet. Their job is to move these four pallets that were lined up into the first available truck. Um, that system has to kind of figure out what's going on and reconcile. Um, and that's, that's where most of our discussions are always, we always get to the operational aspect and we spend a lot of time through the proof of concepts and the trials just once we prove the technology, then the rollout on a lot of these deals are six to 12 months just because of the number of systems you have to go in and, and automatically integrate to. So obviously that person in the warehouse themselves is probably not the decision maker, it's just a wild guess. So how does, where do you end up starting? Where's the, we know the CIO's up in the cloud sitting there saying, oh, I want a digital twin and no one's paying attention to that. So now let's go, who's actually the, the customer of record for you guys? Uh, it's you who owns it? the operational budget. So whoever has to report up to the CFO the price per ship, what my, what my vendors are charging me, the number of assets that I have in there, is typically somebody that has that level of budget responsibility, which always, which always falls into a, an operations, you know, whether you call that a third or fourth tier manager, but it's somebody that has that budget, right? And then typically there are four or five other people that come into play on that decision. So they, they almost always have to be your sponsor. In some cases, we get some sponsorship uh, out of the business analysts that want better tools. 
and want better um, pieces of information, and so they will drive a mandate down, and then maybe there's three or four things there. But it's almost always whoever has financial responsibility for the execution of that business. Um, and, so the and then so the arguments there are around operational efficiency, what pieces of information can be pulled out, what can the analysts glean from it, um, how can that transform businesses, either from you know, a digitization, so they now have everything, um, not just the current shipments, but all the previous history, and they can do deep trend analysis. How can they start to understand their business and change it better? But it's, at the end of the day, it's he who has the cash wins the boat. Okay, so, so I'm gonna take us down a different path, unless James, you wanna stay here. On this on this thread, okay, uh, I have this this woman in my house, and she's called my wife, and she has this interesting relationship with Amazon, where she wants everything immediately, right? She's she's like upset if it's it's a two day same same day is not good enough. Yeah, same day is not <laughs> good. So, just out of curiosity, in the conversations here, Prime now. Yes. So, just out of curiosity, has that issue come up and on? making things happen faster, getting the inventory out? Yeah, some of the big retailers that we work with are very concerned about Amazon's whole strategy with same-day delivery because, you know, they've kind of fought the battle of online, right? So everybody has an online strategy. I think everybody has an omni-channel strategy where you can pull stuff from. So now it's, a, to your point, it's about speed of delivery. And the only way you can guarantee speed of delivery is you have to have pretty good visibility. You know, even if it's not real-time, you gotta be pretty close to real-time of where stuff is and how it's moving. Um, and you know, Amazon's done that through a couple different ways, right? They've outfitted um, the drivers with tools. They well, you say near, near real-time visibility. It's not just the visibility. It's near real-time inventory. And that might be a greater issue that Amazon has, has put the distribution points out there and has the analytics to determine what they should have at those points. Yeah, so if you, I mean, if you flow the whole supply chain back, right? So, so your point of delivery traditionally was from a DC to you know, a regional facility. Your point of delivery on some of these products could be Whole Foods, right? Yeah. To your point where your inventory flow and your consumption could be from some other asset that well, you have in the I, area. And I think also they're playing, I, I, I use Prime now a ton, and I see that some days they're playing an arbitrage game as well with, with product. That product by, uh, volatility of pricing is going up and down based on how much they have in the in the actual warehouse. Yeah, and well, a like warehouse. Terrell. And, and, a, and a, well, a perfect example of that is leave something in your cart for three days, and to your arbitrage point, it will send you notices that the price is either going up or down because they are playing inventory games. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so uh, you know, I don't know how most of the, um, the retailers are gonna, gonna deal with that. Walmart and Target are starting to to, to look at their back off, back warehouses as also um, local distribution points or yeah, local distribution So we talked about this in the other session, which is that retail concern to Walmarts and Targets and the others has now is now flowing over to the food industry. So in the food industry, particularly with Amazon Fresh, Walmart's looking at initiatives that they can guarantee the quality of food to wherever it is, home delivery or to the, but that's an area that they're starting to get into with just with the systems and automation and visibility they've done and drive that down into the quality of what's delivered to the to the restaurant or wherever. And they're, they're approaching in that space, which was was never was never part of so Amazon's and business. And I think Target is, is now invested in what, SHIP? 
yeah. um, HEB, which is the local grocer in Texas, largest grocer in Texas, you know, actually second largest employer in Texas, has invested in Instacart and other other technologies because they're also trying to do play against Amazon and Amazon Prime now. Yeah, I, I think that's going to be a fascinating industry to watch here in the next three to five years because certainly what's been done on the retail side from the ability to move product quick could certainly be translated into the food industry, which is highly archaic in terms of how most of that's done today. So it's, go ahead, James. Well, I was just going to say, it also is a moving things, things closer to the, to the consumer also has the reverse impact of quality of freshness of produce and things like that, which hits that multi-billion dollar initiative around the cold chain, right? Yeah. So this is where I show ignorance, which I know I show all the time, but let's go for it right now. Um, so is the whole world of third-party logistics going to change as a result of what's going on here? In the fact that should a Conway or a Dewey Pile, my favorite company, just by the name, um, a, a Yellow, uh, should they be basically bringing distribution centers themselves and in effect uh, providing third-party warehouse more and doing more local distribution for those kind of services? Or is that too far-fetched for what's going to happen? No, I don't think so. We were in a session in uh, uh, Germany a couple of months ago, and it was interesting to see all the 3PLs that had normally just transported stuff now setting up virtual warehouses for that purpose, right? So they were starting to try to figure out in the areas where they have hot zone, could they create a storage could they create, you know, kind of a temporary bonded stock, right, to provide some pull from? So I think that's an area where they're trying to get into. The flip side of that is, it, it was interesting, is that the Uber freight guys are trying to figure out how to use Uber drivers for last mile, right? And even to the point where there's been discussions around, could they make some of the Uber drivers, you know, basically your 3PL drivers, independent 3PL drivers, right, and have them pick up, you know, partial loads and medium loads that are all kind of expedited. So there's some wild things going on in that space with traditional players that have run business models that have not changed in a long time and up-and-comers trying to figure out how can they pick themselves into, if nothing else, right, the, the faster, you know, same-day expedited high, you know, high-margin deliveries because people are willing to pay for that and then, you know, regulate everybody else to the long-haul piece, which is, you know, stuff that gets, you know, pretty aggressive in terms of where they end up in price. Well, I think the guys in Europe are really scared that Amazon's coming too. You know, I, I just took a trip uh, before the, the holidays and I was went from went from uh, Amsterdam to Cologne and every rest stop for, for trucks and every way station, actually there was an Amazon Prime uh, semi parked in there, even though they don't operate there. They had the big blue Prime semis in there and with a banner on them said coming soon. Right, they're 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 petrified of, of how the how the industry is changing. Um, the one thing that I don't think is changing as fast as this is is the actual shippers. Um, you take a look; a lot of this industry is still controlled by ma and pa, right? It's 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 guys that have ten or fewer trucks and and thirty or fewer trailers, and and are they doing anything to? outfit themselves with technology only when they have to. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, we, 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 
don't sell to as many as we used to, but they are highly reluctant to put anything on that uh, the customer could access from a visibility standpoint or believed increased costs. And, and so consequently, right, they, they don't understand technology. They don't have the benefit of it. And to your point is, you know, where do they end up in this game where at some point a lot of this is table stakes, right? It's not just visibility. It's temperature on anything, right? They're and all the basic service you have to offer. And they don't even know where to get this technology because where do Ma and Pa buy their technology, you know, as truckers today? Yeah, and they've got no they they, don't have the expertise in, internally to support it. They're buying it at truck stops. Right. You know, when, when the ELD mandate hit, company Transflow, you, you mentioned uh, a lot of loads being, you know, brokered at, at truck stops and whatnot. Transflow's one of the companies that does that. Transflow went ahead and, and white labeled the Geotab solution and to sell at truck stops to capture that that business. I'm that wondering is where most of that business is done is yeah. in those places where they can park and then try and fight for their next load. Absolutely. And 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 they and they but they were selling these these uh, in cab solutions, right? Branded by Transflow because people understood the Mon Pa understood the Transflow name as being a brokerage. Right. They 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 had the in cab solutions. I'm wondering when is somebody like that going to ultimately sell sensors? When am I going to walk into Pilot, the Flying J, and see box level and pallet level or trailer level track and trace devices for sale? I mean, I mean that's an interesting point, right? I mean, you know intuitively that's going to happen, right? It's a question of who takes the leader position, position and then who does the outfitting of those facilities to allow for that, trans that transfer of technology to occur on that load, right? Because there's no, there's no technical reason why it can't occur. It's all about... Who are the players that drive that, and then how do you work that business model? But it, it's just a matter of time till that becomes, a, particularly on partial loads and, and kind of critical loads that are split or diverted. It's a matter of time till that happens. And it's, and it's funny, Flying J. Most people don't realize this is the third largest Wi-Fi provider in the United States, in terms of number of subscribers. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let me go back to the the warehousing and third party logistics going to the warehousing. There's also the, the, I can make the case that there'll be the opposite side where um, large um, companies put better distributions out in the field. And then the question is, do they really need third parties anymore if they know exactly the routes they're using and they're doing full loads to, uh, to their own sites? It, you, do you see that happening or is that too far afield? I don't, you know, I don't know. We, we still look at, I mean, the number of managed full loads um, is, not, is not really growing. Okay. The, the problem is the other direction, which is it becomes, in a lot of cases, it becomes more efficient for them to start to split and divide loads at some point in the process, and they don't know what that looks like until maybe they're two days into the shipment, right? Okay. And I think that some of that's driven by the demand for same day and the demand for... So the challenge that a lot of these, these companies are facing with is the traditional lanes that they would run, they would run, you know, it takes three days to get from Poughkeepsie, New York, all the way down to Miami, right? That's a known route, high yep. risk, you know. That, that, those lanes aren't taking more traffic. It's all of the stuff that's starting to be diverted and split off and what they're combining in it that's, that's creating the challenges. And that's a, that is a different challenge, both from an inflammation process and who you use than it is to establish own lane. So we've kind of seen it go the other way, which is there's so much emphasis on the last, kind of the last leg now, 
because they want to find a way to get that automated so then they have true pull through of where everything is going. So if they need to go tweak the load balancing in their, in their regional hubs and their distribution centers, they can kind of do that real time as opposed to whenever that stuff comes back around trying to figure out where it is. Okay. It's a, it's a complex challenge because of the way shipments are done today and who owns trailers and who doesn't and where you pick up the, where you get the load from. Now, what I've been told by, by a certain person remain anonymous um, is that we're short of truckers big time. Absolutely. And that, that begs the question, you know, are the less than loads kind of waiting out to get more profit out of it uh, because of the fact that there are less drivers around? Are we getting into situations where we're, in effect, trying to optimize the profit given the fact that we're missing drivers? Yeah, there's a couple of dynamics going on that area. You're absolutely right. The number of drivers and trucks is, is really below what's needed. The, the bigger companies that use a lot of third-party logistics um, have secured commitment, right? So whether they've guaranteed fixed number of loads plus guaranteed some overages, so they've pulled them, you know, where that used to be more ad hoc, they've pulled them out of the market. And so what it's left with is the people that don't have that kind of clout are really, to your point, are really having to go in and negotiate how can I get the load, right? How can I get a portion of my load on that load? What does it mean to me? Um, but yeah, that's a, that is a big problem in the industry right now. There just aren't enough trucks and drivers. And so that arbitrage, um, if you're not one of the big players that leverage that arbitrage on how do you get your load and how much of your load can get on there is really forcing you to make some decisions about how they run and where they run and probably the price. And quite range. frankly, that didn't matter three years ago, right? right? The trucker shortage didn't matter as much three years ago. It, it was there. It's been there for the last 10 years where there's been a, a, a lack of, 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 of drivers. Um, and it didn't matter because we weren't tracking hours of service. Right. Now that we're tracking hours of service electronically, right, it, it, it catches up. You know, I know a lot of drivers. I personally know several com uh, companies that, that, that are trucking companies, and their drivers would drive eight hours, sleep for four, or, uh, and then and drive for eight more and sleep for four, and drive eight more, or four more, and you can't do that anymore, right? You right. just can't do it, so. So that, in, in effect, that amplifies is the to, problems. That, that is, it magnifies the problems that we have today, um, and it magnifies the, the, uh, the, net, the need for, um, for companies to actually deploy technology. Right. Yeah. So. Go ahead, Jeff. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say, even the, even the other part that's fascinating on that story is a lot of the big retailers, Best Buy and others in particular, have very tight windows on when their deliveries have to be there, right? So if you don't have visibility throughout the journey, to your point, right, something happens that forces that window to shift or move, right, it has a big impact on what happens because you miss, you may, you miss it. You may not come back around for 24 hours, right? It's not like you can miss your slot and show up six hours later and have the you know, ability to offload your truck it doesn't happen well I'll, and I'll, I'll use HEB for grocery in Texas as an example they own their own trucks they actually own a trucking company and then they use third parties as well right so they're so in instances where the third party load isn't going to get there they're going to send their own guy they're going to send them now right and there's a group of those guys that are just what I'll call them the hot shots, right? Providers, they, yeah. they, they're, they're the emergency guys, right? We need beef. We need beef in this part of the... Right? So, so 
in my in my head, I'm kind of getting a Pony Express uh, concept in my, of basically having drivers standing by in certain areas where you know that the the 10-hour limit or the 8-hour limit's been hit, and you're going to swap drivers. That's not happening anywhere, right? I don't know that I can comment on that. I just I know the shortage I, is so severe that it's been hard to find for some of our customers to find drivers on load that aren't I, that I don't aren't see that deal making but you know one of the one of the issues on time and hours and, and this is where technology has played a role is way stations and, and and inspection stations in different states and now there are actually new technologies where um, it's basically like the uh, Remember at Disney, you used to have the Fast Pass, yeah, fast pass right? right. That, that, you can sign up for that, right? Or you can sign up for a solution where um, you don't e you can bypass the way stations because you have the electronics that they can determine basically how much you have in your in your truck and and that the hours of service of are are under and boom, go go right around it instead of having to wait 15, 30, 45 minutes in line at each way station. You know, if, if you're going across country, you're probably doing that three or four times, five times a day. Well, and we didn't talk on this, but I mean, it leads to the whole conversation and now you censor up everything, right? The tire, tire pressure, all of that stuff, because downtime is such a big deal and where that occurs, where, you know, so now a lot of the companies we work with, particularly on the OEM level, are trying to put full sensors in tires, brakes, everything, so that they have some level of of confidence when that truck's going down the road of what's going on. So if anything happens, they can get a hotshot team out to it and either move the load off or you know get it repaired. But that's on the truck yeah, side, yeah, not on, on the, the trailer that's side, on, right? That's well, on the truck side today, and they're working on trailers. They're working on trailers, yeah. too. I mean, look at uh, things like Peloton, right? Doing platooning of trucks and trailers uh, to, to uh, save money as well, right? So they, they, they jump into line. Um, They'll do a platoon of, of trucks. Um, if, if, the, if you have that application, I don't know how much you know about it, but it, I, I thought some of the stuff that was kind of cool with Peloton is the guy up front re re receives like a 13% cost savings in, in fuel savings. The guys behind them, the, the, they'll do a, a maximum of five in a row, in a, um, and they run really close to each other, um, and they basically release control of their truck so it's a, a, yeah. a semi-autonomous driving, you know, and and the guys behind get four percent fuel savings, but they don't think that's fair, so they get a switch Rotate, position. Yeah. So they switch positions throughout the. Well, that's the way, way geese work. So you know, it's it's it is. It is. Yeah. It so is. so it's it's a logical strategy. Um, so so getting on to the those those autonomous electronic trucks, um, are you seeing a lot of them? Where do we stand? You know, is is this just still in the pipe dream mode, or are we seeing some of this? Uh, I, I think in Europe there's more than in the U.S., although we've heard of some instances in the U.S. where they're they're dealing with the autonomous driving, even though they still have a driver in the cab for, you know, basically check and balancing purposes. I think your point is right, is we're going to see um, the pooling of trailers and other trucks in that little caravans, right, that are all kind of coordinated together um, to get more efficiency. That, that I think, is absolutely going to happen. So um, whether they go full autonomous and there's no driver involved, I don't, I'm not sure not where that I plays, think it's going to be a, a semi-autonomous world. Yeah. And, you know, and, and right now it's it's not even, there is a driver in that in that seat, right? 
and, and the driver doesn't relinquish all the controls. Just some, right? So, so we've been talking a lot, and we've been asking a lot of questions, but the question is, has the audience got any questions? So, wave your hands vigorously. Uh, we've got a question. So you mentioned a lot of issues and problems and shortages and everything, but so why is it working? Why is it working today? Because I order something online and I get it the next, I get it the next day. I go to the grocery store and I get the produce, the produce that I want. So why is it still working? Have you tried to buy Purell this week? Or toilet paper? Or toilet paper? Or masks? Or there's yeah, a lot yeah, of but things. Yeah, but it, it's, not, it's, it's not a logistic issue, it's a production issue. Actually, I don't know that it's an operations issue because I can buy Purell at Home Depot. I can't buy it at Walgreens right now today. So that's a logistical issue that hasn't been solved yet. Um, it, it's in their, it, and it is in their distribution centers, right? In all their distribution, but it's not out to the, to the consumer. Um, so quite frankly, I don't think there's a lot that's working well yet um, in, in this space. I think I'm going to get a, a nice argument, but I, I, I truly don't believe that we're tying from the manufacturing floor to the end consumer together well. The only guy that's done that's Bezos at Amazon. Walmart's not good at it. Target's not good at it. Um, and, and look at the, the and go back, back and look at the stock values of, of these types of companies compared to, to Amazon today. They've taken a holistic approach, soup to nuts on, on what they're doing to, to get there. So, so we, we uh, I think in general, the way the reason the system works is we've learned how to balance the inventory levels at different places and the average cycle time to get there. Where we've seen where the system starts to have problems is if you have uh, an area where there's a storm or an area where there's some other event that causes a disruption in the supply chain logistics process, only certain companies that we've seen could recover in 24 hours. Some of them might take two days to recover because they don't have an available driver pool or the driver was pulled out around the route. Particularly in the pharma space because we instrument almost all of the pharma shipments at the pallet level. We get, our customers will sometimes call us to expedite another set of tracking devices and we'll ship to an alternate location than they normally would ship to because they're basically got a holding storage or facility that they're gonna divert from to get to their end place. Uh, there are certain times of year, you know, peak shipping season, cold and flu season, where that imbalance is really bad and we've seen our customers um, really stock up extra quantities in the DC level so that they have a way to do that. But I think the reason the system works today is everybody's kind of figured out how to balance inventory levels and shipping routes and lanes. And then when a situation occurs where it creates an ad hoc shipment, they have processes in place to figure it out. I think the problem is, back to the point is, he, he who's the biggest gorilla gets priority on that stuff, right? And so ultimately, while you as I consumers may not see it, we may find an alternate store that's out of something, right? where that store may feel the brunt of the impact because their source of supply doesn't have the pecking order or, or ability to recover that somebody else down the street is. But I think as consumers, for the most part, we've learned to navigate around that to kind of figure out where stuff is, where we go and where we shop.
and that we know that we know when shipments get there and when they're repressed and so we kind of work our own processes around that you know last july jeff bezos made an amazing statement and he said um, he predicted the death of amazon in five years right it's 25 years old and he'd said it, it he thought it's only going to last 30 years that's because of the adoption of technology and the types of technology that people utilize. Now, I can't predict five years from now what's going to replace Amazon, but maybe it's the maybe it's when the Ubers of the world and the Instacarts of the world um, actually have their own micro distribution points. There, as there well. are definitely some other people right. that are going after them, and the question whether is not do they have the money to do it, right? It's it's do they have an operational process in place that they can either mirror or, or leverage things that Amazon doesn't have, right? Um, it's interesting, They're, everyone's concerned and I think about that's Amazon why in all aspects of the supply chain now. That's why they've, they've gone to so many of their employees and said, you know, we will actually fund you if you wanna, wanna, wanna set up a delivery service, right? So. Of course. We eat our own, right? That's the well, yeah. Uh, Vice President of Solstice, yeah, one of the one of the larger development companies in IoT. Vice President of Marketing there actually left the company and set up an Amazon uh, distribution. He has five vans, right, uh, delivering Prime now. Okay, are there any other questions from the audience? Going once, going twice. Give them a round of applause, please. Okay, I'm going to teach you guys something. If you clap your hands sideways and make it so that you've got a pocket of air, it sounds louder. So, just exactly, exactly. Anyway, thank you all. So, Carl? Yes, sir, is it wrap-up time? It's, it's, I think it's an elongated wrap-up. Okay. Um, let me come up there so you and I can wrap. Don't worry, we, we, it's not a real wrap. We had a couple of speakers that couldn't make it today, and I just wondered if the audience, if there's any topics that they came for, wanted to hear about, that we were unable to uh, Right, we, we didn't do private LTE, right? Was anybody here for private LTE? Does anyone know what private LTE is? That's another question. Uh, so. And we can take that one offline if you want. You, you got a microphone right there. Sorry to do that to you, but oh, the agony. I, I was here for private LTE, but maybe because I don't know what it is. Well, we can talk about it quickly. You know, are are you in Europe as well as the U.S. or are you strictly strictly U.S. Okay. Um, there, there are there are bands in CBRS that people will t basically take advantage of. Go ahead. Back up. CBRS. CBRS. It's an acronym. Citizen it's a technology acronym. Can you can you explain? Yes. It? Citizens Broadband Relay uh, Radio Service. It's basically a open spectrum, quasi open spectrum. Uh, the Navy has rights to it. Some of the satellite companies have rights to it. And now the FCC is lightly licensing sections of it for carriers to backhaul uh, in the system. But 
you don't get any real interference if you're on your own buildings, if you're in your own location, you're pretty, you're pretty clean and, and can use it. Some companies are deploying it um, as basically an internal service that then connects back to like a neutral host with fiber or that capability. Uh, other companies are, um, uh, like some of the carriers, are actually providing it as a managed service to companies. So rather than lose the customer, it's sort of like a PBX to the, but, to the but, phone room. But you're, you're talking specifically about CBRS. And, and, and the question was private LTE. Right. And, and CBRS is one spectrum, but not all the spectrums that you can use. So a person could acquire spectrum and deploy their own private LTE solution or deploy LTE in unlicensed spectrum. Right, well. right. Can you explain that a little bit, Carl? Well, it, it's basically, they're applying the same technology. One, one of the ways this works in the CBRS side is there is a thing called a SAS where it actually tracks who's using what spectrum so you can basically listen in and know that you're clean. So one of the things that you can do with private LTE is if you find yourself dealing with spectrum issues between you and your neighbor is you can take advantage of the same kind of technology to basically listen in and know where you can go and where they're going. So that's, that's a, good, a, a good solution. If, have you done LMR? Do you do LMR at all? Carl, okay. you haven't done the most basic piece. Go ahead. But LTE is, is a cellular enabled te technology that we, we utilize for our handsets today. And it is a much better, much more spectrally efficient um, technology than, say, Wi-Fi. You get greater distance. Um, you get much greater throughput um, utilizing Great. LTE. Um, okay. And in some of the um, segments of, of LTE, there, there are things such as narrowband IoT or LTE category M. LTE is based, the speed of it is based on uh, the category of the radio. So right now I've seen stuff 1 through 24. Ca category 1, slower speed. Category 24, blazing fast, you know, can transmit a, a hell of a lot of data uh, incredibly fast. Um, those are the benefits, and th this is why people are going to private LTE. It's because... Wi-Fi is just good enough. Um, when we're talking about putting uh, robotics out on uh, on the uh, production floor and having cameras manage how production is being done uh, and, and ensuring quality of service of the, the network to be able to provide the, the type of connectivity that's necessary and to be able to to provide the bandwidth necessary to do this. That's why people are moving to, to private LTE. Um, companies like Cradlepoint, Cisco, they offer private LTE solutions. Uh, Meraki, which is part of Cisco now, um, uh, that can be deployed. Ericsson and Nokia are getting into the private LTE space in a major way uh, to, the, to, to deploy directly to the enterprise. Um, and then another reason why um, many enterprises, especially large distribution centers or large warehouses and manufacturers want it is because 
to get the same type of coverage or distance of coverage in that building with Wi-Fi, you're having to put up multiple devices. You end up with collisions of packets, packet loss, and quality of service errors, and it's just so-so quality. LTE is going to provide a hell of a lot better quality. The issue is guys have been learning how to manage Wi-Fi for years, don't really know how to manage the, right. the, the, the right. LTE base stations. And that's why we, uh, Carl and I were with Ericsson in, uh, less than a year ago in their labs looking at how they're making it almost more simple than setup of a, a Wi-Fi wi router at home, right? I mean, quite frankly, I find it a pain in the butt every time I have to change a, a, my Wi-Fi experience at home because sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Got to hit the reset button a few times. They're trying to make this really simple out of the box and make it look, in utilizing LTE, there's also the, the SIM that's involved because it's a GSM. GSMA spec, they're trying to make that as user-friendly as well. It historically hasn't been a, a user-friendly experience, and that's what they're working on now. Yeah. There's also obviously the economies of scale. You know, no offense to Wi-Fi, but you know, every person in my house has a phone, right? Not everybody, ha we only have one Wi-Fi in the house, right? So you get a great deal of economies of scale with LTE. Um, to James's point, um, one of the things that's going on in this world, and, and, and I'll, I'll tell you I have not liked this happening, but it's the case, is that we've gotten things called small cells. And it's, it's very easy now for uh, something that looks sort of like a, a Wi-Fi solution in the way that it, it manages um, the network as a small device. You know, I, I, I grew up with big towers and you know, big, big antennas all over the place, and that was way I thought of things. But nowadays, you get very localized capabilities that you can use with private LTE. That yeah, the, la the last generation LTE mask or tower from um, uh, antenna from uh, uh, Sprint was about the size of um, that, that tower structure holding the light, the, the, just the, the, the one side of it, right? It was kind of narrow and long. You see them hanging off of, off of cell towers as you go down the road, right? great big massive device that weighs probably upwards of a thousand pounds so it takes a crane to put it up there or uh, a block of tackle right to hang mm -hmm. it up there and, and, and these guys they climb those towers to put that stuff in they get massive hazard pay right to, to do this um, and, and Nokia's um, uh, new generation of small cells that they're putting out are, are literally the size They're they're a cube, right? Right, yeah. the size of my open hand, and and uh, and they transmit um, uh, just as much data and throughput. It's just you have to deploy more of them to get a more dense network. Yeah, Ericsson's got a good a good solution in, in supporting private LTE in, in a building, right? They they manage the admin well, and you know it doesn't have some of the um, well, and I'll say it looked good from what we saw, but okay. it wasn't we, it wasn't released true. yet. That's so. true. We, we were ahead of the curve on it, and there may be some... Carl's, some Carl's very trusting that, that the technology guys are get it right. Me, 
Nah, not so much. So, so in my history, I, I worked for a company that will remain anonymous, but they had a solution called FIOS. We went through four iterations of FIOS before we got it right. But from the customer's perspective, it was all FIOS. Okay, so so I have a belief in the long-term solution. And Comcast is still bigger. <laughs> so I have a belief in the long-term solution, right? We we made several mistakes along the way, but in the end, we got it right. So I think that's the that's the reason I'm an optimist is because I I have a long viewpoint on this, um, and and I can see the value to private LTE. I just I I, I look at one of our friends who remain anonymous. Um, is trying to get rid of millimeter is trying to get ready for millimeter wave, uh, which is an aspect of 5G, and millimeter wave has some penetration issues. Um, so a lot of us are skeptical about when you talk about millimeter wave and 5G, and they built an app that basically takes advantage of a 5G phone, and you basically walk around like a divining rod, trying to figure out where you can optimize the the millimeter wave antenna. And, and when you're doing that kind of stuff, right, to, you get into trouble real fast, right? You can easily imagine someone looking at it going, well, why the hell is this here? It's un it, looks, it looks a mess. Let me move it, right? And the next thing you know, you're sitting there, and how come the service went down? So, you know, I, I think we're going to see some of those kind of issues that we're going to have to face. And, and they believe that most of their – most of the – customers are going to be the indoor side and not the outdoor side, right? And I, I kind of question that. I, I, I'd expect people more, particularly if it's being managed by a third party, I would expect it to be exterior. Such as who? Such as who? Such as, such as a systems integrator or a third party solution. I can imagine um, the carriers putting it in as a third, as a, um, at adjunct box, right, as a, as a functionality. If you're providing a managed service. Private LTE? Private LTE. Providing it. Do you think it's going to be an exterior device? I think I can make a case that for. What type of company wants an exterior? Maybe CBRE, those kind of guys. Uh, I, I could tell you, like, Nuper News Shipyard. Shipyards. Size of but that's, can, that's a campus-wide. That's a campus-wide solution, just like a large distribution. And there are distribution yeah. centers that I, I'm thinking it's venues like this. Okay. Right. Like ma massive scale. Shipyards. You're right. You're absolutely. Rail yards. But that's yeah. not what I was hearing you say. Yeah. No. I'm. 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 I'm just so skeptical about millimeter wave that I'm. I'm. I'm believing that we're going to end up in, in exterior solutions. You know, I, I loved boosters. You know, they no, they never took off, but I, I loved signal boosters. I thought they were great. You know, so that's my own thing. So I I'm prejudiced the wrong way. James will tell you I, I uh, have my own viewpoints that are not necessarily held by the rest of the world. So are, are there any uh, private, private, private entity provider today that are commercialized? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
there are some in the U.S. that, that do it. I, I know mostly Europeans that are doing it, um, and, and a lot of it's all governmental work. There are some, there's actually an open source uh, private LTE solution in this world that uh, is being used in the U.K. So there, there are people who are taking advantage of and doing it. Yeah, and I know one, I, I can't mention them because it's, um, but it's, it's a traditional MVNO um, in the U.S. is managing a private LTE network for, in, in a particular region, for an oil and gas mm. company, right? So the oil and gas guys went ahead and acquired the spectrum in the Rio Grande Valley of, of Texas, and an MVNO um, actually manages their, their network because they have so much the data that they want to collect from the, the gas platforms uh, to determine should we keep drilling or not. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's another aspect of this, which is um, no offense to all the commercials, but rolling out 5G is not exactly going to be even across the country. You know, it, normally the rule is look at the football field, stadium, cities, you know, the big yellow, and that's where things will happen first. And uh, to James's point to me another time ago, you can't get LTE in some in some states. Oh no, yeah, you know, take a look where coronavirus has not hit. <laughs> you don't have LTE, right? <laughs> Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota. Uh, it, it's rare to get LTE off the interstate, right? Drive drive 20 miles off the interstate, and you still have a GPRS signal on your on your on your phone um, it, it's uh, it, it's interesting so that that you have um, this and he says the the commercials I, I just laugh at the one where, where it had T-Mobile saying they have nationwide 5g service and you got Verizon out there saying their their LTE is faster than the 5g and you go to my hometown, and you got neither, right? Where, right, where right. I grew up, so. Right, so, so to, to the point we we're making, right, there are some situations there where someone, someone will say, I, I will deliver you private LTE in your area because it solves the problem, and you know, to, to, to our point a few times ago is, you know, oh, sunset is and, happening. And by the way, there actually is a company that's, that's trying to acquire the spectrum away from U.S. cellular to deliver private LTE to windmills, the wind towers yeah, ac across northwest Iowa, right. where they don't have LTE at, at right now, and, and it, they want to do that. So I, I actually read that in a, in a yeah. filing recently. But, but to that point, it gets more application-specific, right? So it's, it, the price of it's got to be worthwhile. You know, it's got to have some economies of scale into it. Any other questions? We've, we, I, th I think we've, uh, I, I want to thank our audience of two here for uh, being with us and asking the hard questions. So I think we're ready to do it one-on-one -on -one if they need it. Okay? What time is it, Carl? Time to unmodex. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for being with us. <laughs>